0: maybe thought that humans got too big for their britches and so came down and dispersed them, confused their language and spread them out over the face of the earth, whole earth as a punishment. That's the basic interpretation that's been the most common, and I think it's dead wrong. Um, one of the other really interesting things that you can't get even in a translation is there are three letters that occur in the same order in many words throughout this story. But when it says come let us confuse their language, the ver- verb confuse has those three letters reversed. So the very word that says has confuses the typical three letters which keep occurring, the three consonants with vowels between them, right? That keep occurring in the story. So the genealogy that the list yeah. of you know descendants that comes right before this story ends with somebody named mm-hmm. Shem. And the genealogy starts after ends with somebody named Shem. So Shem just means name. That's his name. And these we want to make a name. Nobody's name is given in this story, unlike all the genealogies, full of names. This story has no name.
1: Hey everyone, this is What's Your Pastor didn't tell you. Today I'm talking with Richard Milton on the Tower of Babel, what it really means and how we've kind of confused the text there. Uh, so Richard, how are you doing today? Uh, and can you give us a little bit about your background as well as what you're up to these days?
0: Sure, I'm doing really well today, thank you. Um, so I, I'm a Jamaican, grew up in Kingston, Jamaica, did an undergraduate theology degree there, Jamaica Theological Seminary. Moved to Canada, did an MA in Philosophy, a master's thesis on religious language in Thomas Aquinas and Paul Tillich. Then I did biblical studies in a number of different places and went on to do a PhD and my dissertation was on being created in God's image in Genesis 1. Um, Right now what I'm working on is a book on 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 16, the power dynamics between the prophet Samuel, the first king Saul, and God. Who are none of whom are on the same page in my reading. I'm looking at the dynamics of that, what we can learn about character, about power, about agency, and the ethics of leadership from that. That's the book I'm working on right now. It's called Portrait of a Disgruntled Prophet.
1: You said you talked about uh, you went to uh, somewhere in Jamaica, school in Jamaica, Um, but you've also written some books or done some stuff on the topic of the Tower of Babel. Is that right?
0: What I've done is I, there's a subsection of my book on the image of God in Genesis 1 that looks at um, the whole of Genesis 1 through 11. And so I have a little piece on the Tower of Babel in that chapter.
1: Gotcha. It's and not a whole be book. be a lot of fun. Yeah, it's not a whole okay. book. Yeah, right. All right. So, and that's called the Liberating Image. Liberating so Image. Make sure to, of the
0: book, yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Everyone make sure to check that out. All right. So, let's do this. Um, so obviously there's a whole bunch of different views on the Tower of Babel. Um, can we read from it and then we'll we'll talk about different views on it?
0: Sure. Yeah. So I'm going to read you my own translation. So you're kind of going to get my slant on it. All right? <clears throat> no, all the earth had one language and few words. And as they traveled from the east, they found a plain or valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said, each one to his neighbor, come, let us brick bricks and burn to burn. That's very literal what the Hebrew says. And they had brick for stone and for mortar they had bitumen. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered over the face of all the earth. And Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower that the humans had built. And Yahweh said, Look, they are one people, and there's one language for them all. This is the beginning of their works. Now nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so they will not understand one another's speech. And Yahweh scattered them from there over the face of all the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore it is called Babylon, for there Yahweh babbled the language of all the earth. And from there, Yahweh scattered them over the face of all the earth.
1: All right, so that's obviously a, a different translation than maybe a lot of people have heard. Um, so that'll it's make it. It's my very fun. literal
0: translation, trying to get at the, uh, yeah. the literary qualities of the text. Yeah,
1: that's awesome. All right, so um, so obviously, uh, there's there's been a lot of different views on this topic. Um, can you go over just a few, or maybe the po- more popular ones, and right. um, and then we can talk about your view.
0: The most popular view of this passage has been that this is the origin of multiple languages on Earth. At one time, everybody spoke the same language, <clears throat> lived in one place, <clears throat> and they had certain kinds of buildings, and they were trying to storm Heaven, to get into Heaven, building a tower to Heaven. But God um, maybe thought that humans got too big for their britches, and so came down and dispersed them, confused their language, and spread them out over the face the whole Earth as a punishment. That's the basic interpretation that's been most common and i think it's dead wrong
1: and and is that i guess there's there's really in that case not really been that many translations on the topic is that right
0: um what what do you mean by that
1: i'm not sorry not translations but uh interpretations well there have been many
0: interpretations and many people get into lots of different nuances of details i'm giving the general approach that's been taken throughout the history of interpretation there are also always dissenters the people mm. who, I mean, I'm not the only person who dissents from that interpretation. I'm not the only one proposing my interpretation. Others propose it too. I've learned from a lot of other people on that.
1: And is there like a any kind of consensus in scholarship on the topic?
0: No, I wouldn't say consensus, but more and more scholars are saying there are certain details of that reading that don't make sense of the text. And mm. different ones will point out different aspects of that that don't make sense. Gotcha. Um, do you want me to get into that yet or not?
1: Uh, j- just more on, um, <laughs> no just let's, let's talk about yours first.
0: Well that's exactly right, so my I'll give a, illustrations of what other people and I have said about things here that don't really make too much sense. For example, to say that it's about the whole earth having one language at the beginning makes no sense. It occurs at the end of Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 10 has a story in which uh, a king named Nimrod settles a number of cities in what we would call Babylon and Assyria, and they name some of the cities. One of them is Babylon, um, translated in Genesis 11 as Babel in most modern translations. It's also rendered Babel in Genesis 10. And they settled this city, Babel, in the, uh, which is just a C- the Hebrew word for Babylon, right? The only reason we say Babel in our translations is to make it sound like the word B-A-B-B-L-E, that they're babbling. So it's a pun on that. But this is the nation of babylon and they settle on the land of shinar and that's mentioned in genesis 10 as one of the many places humans lived with different languages and then genesis 11 is saying now let's focus on one example of all those places listed in genesis 10 and one of the languages so it's not saying the whole human race has one language it's saying people in that place had one language and they settled there and they built a tower up to heaven. So the tower to heaven is not meant to ascend to heaven, to, um, you know, storm heaven. This is what you call a ziggurat, which is ancient Mesopotamia, both in ancient Sumer and in Babylon and Assyria, where these huge um, sort of pyramid shapes with gigantic steps for the giants to climb. Typically, it's actually for the gods to come down. The purpose of a ziggurat is not to get to heaven. It's not a staircase to heaven. It's a stairway from heaven so the gods can come down to dwell in the temples built at the base of the ziggurat. So building a ziggurat in ancient times meant God bless Babylon. May the gods bless Babylon. Come and be with us, um, lords. That's what they're trying to say. So this text is not talking about everyone in the world trying to storm heaven, but about one people who thought they had religious legitimation for their empire, which fits exactly what we know of the Babylonian um, history. And babylonian ideology
1: gotcha that makes sense okay so um uh, in uh in some of the previous stuff you've talked about and you know in other you know in your writing and in some youtube videos you talked about like some interesting wordplay that the text mm-hmm. uses in hebrew that you know obviously english speakers are never going to even get into that so could yeah. you briefly talk about that here
0: yeah so I render in the first line. Now, that all the earth had one language and few words. Most people say the same words, but when you look at the actual Hebrew and you look at other uses of it in the Bible, it almost always means few. And that means there's been. A, I think this this fits perfectly an ironic comment by the author. That, yeah, the Babylonians they're, they're a big empire, right? They're, they're the civilization that has the most literacy. They had these um. You know clay tablets that you'd write on in cuneiform, and everyone who wanted to be a literate scribe in the ancient world learned the Babylonian language and learned to write this stuff. Even the Israelites, you know, had to do that if they want to really be good scribes. But the writers saying they only had a few words, you know, so when they said, let's bake bricks, they actually said, let's brick bricks using the same verb and noun. And when they said, let's burn them thoroughly in most modern translations, that's said Let's burn them to burn them. the example they have few words and they're mocking the babylonians for that Um, one of the other really interesting things that you can't get even in a translation is that um, there are three letters that occur in the same order in many words um, throughout this story but when it says come let us confuse their language the verb confuse has those three letters reversed so the very word that says confuse confuses the typical three letters which keep occurring, the three consonants with vowels between them, right, that keep occurring in the story. So it's a beautiful piece of literature that's making ironic comments about the Babylonians.
1: That's so fascinating. Okay, so, um, so you talked about the, the wordplay. What about as far as, like, when this text was written, the author, mm-hmm. like, do you have any thoughts on that one?
0: Nobody actually knows when any Old Testament text was written. And if anybody tells you they know, they're talking through their shirt. They don't know what they're saying. Um, There is a really good biblical scholar, retired now, living in England. He's a Brit, but he was teaching at Fuller Seminary named John Goldingate, wrote a three-volume commentary on the Psalms. It's the best commentary I know of. And at the introduction to every Psalm, he says, now, when was this Psalm written? And he surveys the commentaries. And usually, it's about a 1,000 years difference in all the different proposals that people give. He says, therefore, the point is, we really don't know. And it doesn't matter. <laughs> and for most of the Bible, the Old Testament anyway, it's so far back we don't know when it was written, which doesn't really matter to me. I take it as inspired by God, written by different authors responding to different contexts. The most important question is how does a biblical text speak to its general context, not can we pinpoint exactly when it was written. So many people say well the Bible story must have been written when Israel was in Babylon in the sixth century in exile, maybe. But it could have been written a thousand years before. well depending on how far back Israel actually goes, right Israel doesn't quite go back a thousand years, maybe 500 years before because the, the nation of Babylon was the dominant civilization for one and a half thousand years in the ancient Near East. Everybody who wanted to be literate or civilized wanted to be a wannabe Babylonian. So this empire dominated Israel long before the exile. Now if it was written earlier than the exile critiquing the great empire Babylon, when they were in exile in babylon it would have had extra meaning for the israelites but i don't think you can pin it down to say it was written in one particular time period or the other
1: and as far as what um so you talked about the author maybe we don't know that but something we can be more confident in is the purpose so what would you say is the purpose and Mm -hmm. like how it fits in with the rest of genesis 1 to 11. yes that's really
0: interesting many many people take this story as literally what they call a pericope which means a literary unit that you, Perkaby comes in the word to cut. So they cut it out like a unit. And they just look at it. It's a beautiful little piece of literature. But when you put it in context, it's a story of God creating the human race in his image, the human race sinning and diversifying into multiple nations and cultures. And this is the example of one of those cultures, the most dominant one in the ancient world. That's kind of a dead end of God's purposes. These people are basically utilizing their power to dominate the world. It doesn't say that, but I can show you why I think it, it is getting that. And it's showing that God's purposes have almost come to a standstill. And so God now chooses Abraham out of the nations of Mesopotamia. He comes from Ur of the Chaldees. or is one of the Sumerian cities. So he comes from that area, and he's going to be a new nation to bring blessing to all the nations of the world. So it has a particular function to say, don't trust these empires. Even if they're appealing to you, their great buildings, their military, their their civilization, their literature, they're actually a dead end. God has a new purpose for little Israel to be a light to the nations. Focus on your identity and calling as Israel and don't be assimilated to these great empires. I think that's what the text would be saying to its time. So there's analogous meanings for us today. What are the great empires that we want to be like? What cultures do we wanna emulate, you know? Don't do that, descent from them. God is a calling for his people to be a peculiar people, to use language from Peter, right? In this world to testify to the, who Christ is among them. And that requires a certain distancing from the great cultures of our day.
1: Right, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you have this name language in here, maybe this is on the same ones. So we have, so the name is Shimon in Hebrew, and in Genesis eleven four, it says, "Let us make a name yeah. for ourselves." Mm-hmm. And then Genesis one to uh, gen- then there's a whole bunch of different other passages. You know, the sons of God in Genesis six, which says, "Men of the name," literally Shem. Yeah, uh, and you have, have
0: yeah.
1: you have all these gene- genealogies of Shem, where the genealogy of Shem is apparently right before Genesis eleven yes. and right after.
0: Right. So the genealogy, that the list of, you know, descendants that comes right before this story ends with somebody named Mm -hmm. Shem. And the genealogy starts after ends with somebody named Shem. So Shem just means name. That's his name. And these people want to make a name. Nobody's name is given in this story, unlike all the genealogies. full of names. This story has no name. So again, it's a concept. God is working through history, bringing about a people who will testify to his name, who will bear his name, but these people—they don't even—they're not even named. They're nameless. In fact, the only name mentioned here is the name Babylon, and a pun is made on the name Babylon—that it's confusion or chaos—and that is actually the least interesting pun in the whole story. But it's the most obvious one in English. They're called Babel because their god babbled the, the the you know the language of the, the whole world. So even the whole world is a bit of a pun, because all the earth it says had one language. God scattered all the earth over the face of all the earth. Okay, how does that work? Because all the earth is used in certain verses to mean the geographical world, but all the earth is used twice to mean the Babylonians, who thought they were the epitome of humanity. They were all the earth. In the creation story of Babylon, called Enuma Elish, the gods only create the Babylonians. They are all the earth. So this is making fun of that also. The people who thought they were the cat's pajamas, they were the essence of humanity, are just one nation among many, and now they're scattered among all the others. And Babylon no longer exists as a nation.
1: Wait, so if... That's an interesting idea. So if the Enuma Elish is describing only the Babylonians being created, what do you think they would have said about everyone else that was created?
0: They were subhuman. Huh. In fact, the most creation stories in the history of the world are only about the creation of the people who wrote the story. And what that does is it justifies your people to be the central people in the world. When you encounter another people, who are they? They're not us. They're not me. Let's face it. You know, we like to romanticize native peoples in America, but in some of the native peoples, the you know the tribes were very violent and they were they were killing each other in wars and so on. And I know that in a number of um, myths of origins of native peoples, the people who get created are simply their tribe. They're the people. So when they come to another tribe, who are they? They're not the people. They're like an alien. They're an other. And they can be therefore dehumanized and and fought against and destroyed or even maybe enslaved. And that's typical of the whole world. That's not just uh, Babylon, not just native peoples in America. Israel says... God doesn't create Israel, God creates the human race. God creates Israel as a subplot in the human story to bring blessing to the rest of the humans, not to dominate them as the essential humans. That's a fundamentally uh, radical ethical move you find in the Bible.
1: Yeah, it's very fascinating. So you've talked about like all this different wordplay and language that's been used. Um, This is going to be a lot of a lot more different than than other people have, uh, I guess, looked at the text because, you know, you don't see that in, in most most people don't see that in a typical English translation. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So what does that say about, I guess, the genre and how we should read the text? Like, obviously, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like it, that we can call this some, like, straightforward journalistic account.
0: No, no. Uh, really, I mean, there's nothing in the Bible that's straightforward journalistic account, even things that are historical. There are they're framed in a certain way to make certain theological points and so forth. You know, the, why do you have four different Gospels framing the story a bit differently? Even in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, they're framed differently. And then there's John. You know, What was he smoking when he wrote that? You know, <laughs> they're, they're, but it's about the same story. So when you get to Genesis 1 to 11, you get what we call prehistory or primeval history. It's more even legendary in its style. It's not like the, the details of a character and their narration, like you get even with the Abraham story. So you think about the the this story, Genesis 11 one through nine, the Babel story, right? I take it to be a summary telescoping of the entire history of Mesopotamia into one story. The whole history of Mesopotamia is these people trying to unify themselves into one empire and get divine legitimation for their empire, the god Marduk, particularly the high god. But he had 50 names, and he assimilated all the other deities to himself. And they wanted to dominate the world culturally and militarily. This is a story that deconstructs that entire history. It's very strange. Abraham comes from Ur of the Chaldees. Ur is an ancient Sumerian city, even before Babylon, but in the same geographical region, southern Mesopotamia. Chaldees is an ethnic group that entered the Babylonian Empire much, much later. So, or the Chaldees is what you call an anachronism. So, I live about seven hours from New York City, and if what I was to say, you know, the, the the um some of the Dutch immigrants settled in New York City back then. That'd be incorrect because it was actually called New Amsterdam. The New York City is an anachronism to say they settled in New York City. It's an anachronism to say that Abram comes from Ur, the Chaldees, because the Chaldees is a later term. Nebuchadnezzar II, who uh, brought Israel into exile, he was a Chaldean. That was his ethnicity. So, this is a telescope, because even the idea of one language is actually more Assyrian than Babylonian. The Assyrians imposed their language on every conquered people, the Babylonians did not. So, this is mixing Sumerian, Babylonian, and Assyrian culture and telescoping to say the entire civilization is a waste of time. Don't emulate them. (laughs) It's come to a dead stop. We're better than them. And part of the the humor is, look, if you live in Mesopotamia, and that means between the rivers, Meso and Potamus, right, Mess between the rivers, Euphrates and Tigris, they have no naturally occurring rock in that area. It's an alluvial plain. And when um, the rivers overflow, like the Nile does, you get all this silt. And they use the silt to make mud bricks. And for a dwelling that an individual lives in, they would bake the bricks in the sun. But for a monumental building, they would bake them in an oven. And that's what these people do. They burn the bricks to make. It's a monumental building, this ziggurat. They had brick for stone. You See, we have stone. If you are the Israel, there's rocks in every field. To even make out a field and plant something, you've got to take out all the rocks. You see huge piles of rock. All over Israel. So when Jesus talked about building on the rock or the sand, if you live in Israel, you know what he's talking about. They think it's full of rocks. There's no rocks in Mesopotamia. You got to make bricks, mud bricks. So they're mocking that, right? (laughs) They don't have good quality building materials like we do, this great empire. So when you are a little guy and you're faced with a huge monster, you know, David versus Goliath, you got to find a way to prick them, (laughs) prick their ego, basically. That's what this is doing
1: that makes that's a lot, really cool i like the way you put it there um so you kind of got on top onto the topic of like i guess how the israelites would have seen it and you know the the background context of the passage um so so they they found a what was it called um the uh a tablet they found a cuneiform tablet which which many people describe as Like this is what the Tower of Babel was. And um, I just want to make sure, I don't, do you know, is there a specific name for this?
0: I'm not sure which tablet you're thinking of.
1: um, Well, it's the one Skoyin MS 2063.
0: Yeah. See, I don't go to individual things like that because ziggurats were around from ancient Sumerian times, which goes back like Mm -hmm. 3000 BC, right through to um, late Babylonian times. So ziggurat has been around for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So to point to one particular tablet, yeah, maybe there was a picture of Nebuchadnezzar with a ziggurat. And, and there was a famous ziggurat in his time that he was trying to restore in, in, in Babylon and so on. But there were many ziggurats. I don't think this is about one incident. This is a, about the whole history of Mesopotamia. This is what they were trying to do. They were trying to... So what's fascinating, when you read the Babylonians' own literature, they're always talking about the gods, especially Marduk, the chief god, but other gods, Enlil and Ashur and all kinds of other ones. And they always find religious legitimacy for what they're doing. The king is the image of God. That's where we get image of God from the Bible. It's a democratization. Not the king, it's every human being. is a queen and king in their own right um, who represent God in the world. But they always bring everything back to the gods. They actually say the gods built Babylon. The gods did all these things. Well, you find any reference to idolatry in this passage? There's none. It's like a demythologization. Humans said, come, let us do this. The gods never told them to build it. The gods didn't build it. We're going to build it. Let us make a name for ourselves. It's not glorifying Marduk's name, contrary to Enuma Elish. It's glorifying their own name. And their name ends up being Confusion. So this is really a a stripping away of the religious grounding of Babylon. says, no, human beings, in their desire for power, build this empire. And and when he says, let us, who is the us? Who actually built all these buildings? Slaves. Just like in in, in Egypt, the the Pharaoh would bring slaves in, and and, the Israelites were slaves building these cities named after Pharaoh in, in Exodus chapter one, after Ramses and, and Pithom. Well, these people are using slaves, but they're going let us build it. Yeah, we didn't build it. No, they didn't build it. The slaves built it for them. But that's not even mentioned. No gods are mentioned, no slaves are mentioned. And what's interesting, no actual sin is ever mentioned. You have to read between the lines. What did, what was God's problem with Babel? I don't think he was afraid they were gonna get into heaven. That's, that's the false idea. God's problem with Babel was this nation is not good for the earth, not good for the human race. I want to disperse their power so they no longer can do this and you know control so many other nations. Now by the time Israel came into exile, when the Babylonians you know, destroyed Jerusalem, uh, burnt the city, and took um, was it about two thirds of the people into captivity, by that time the Israel would said, Yeah, I'm really glad God <laughs> dispersed them or it's going to disperse them because look what they've done to us. Yeah.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so, so I know you mentioned that you don't, you don't think that, um, you know, these different tablets or whatever are giving much context. Um, at the same time, there's, there's going to be a lot of scholars that will think that is, I mean, some even think that it's like, you know, directly copying or something like that. Um, and, spe- and I mean, but I, I am curious though, if maybe it can add some additional context as far as yeah. like what they thought during that time. So like, um, like in this one, the the one we mentioned before, it, it talks about speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, it says, "I mobilized all countries everywhere, each and every ruler who had been raised to prominence all over the people of the world." Um, but you know, I just it makes me think like did it, they didn't actually think that every single person in the entire world was. Being mobilized to right. to build this yeah. tower, right?
0: So, so that that's Nebuchadnezzar, right? And Nebuchadnezzar is is emperor of Babylon. Now, uh, when when Nebuchadnezzar's empire declined, the Assyrians were taking control, and then sorry, they took control before before Nebuchadnezzar, and then Nebuchadnezzar came and conquered Assyria. Assyria and Babylon are very similar. They're they're, like cousins, you know, kissing cousins, they're very use the same languages, different dialects, and so forth. What's really interesting is the Assyrians had even more extreme rhetoric than what Nebuchadnezzar had. Um, one scholar puts it this way: if the Assyrian king captured one farmer's field, he said, I've conquered the whole region. That's the kind of language they would, use. they would use. Extreme language about any incursion into a foreign place. So Nebuchadnezzar is saying, "I have all these people I mobilized. Well, yeah, he mobilized some of them, <laughs> but but he have extravagant claims for world domination. Um, the ancient uh, Sumerians, you know, were, were called King of the Four Quarters of the Earth. That's the kind of title they would have. So there's megalomania going on here. So don't necessarily believe it. So when, when this text says all the earth, they're mocking that kind of megalomania.
1: Oh, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. It seems like there's all kinds of different levels of yeah. polemic going on here. That's fascinating. Okay, so um, let's see. So many people have said that Genesis 10 adds some additional context of Um, 11 specifically when it says genesis 10 25 it says to ever were born two sons the name of one was peleg for in his days the earth was divided and his brother's name was jockton so for in his days the earth was divided they would think that that refers to the tower of Babel. so that chapter 10 is is like uh uh, just a summary that everything that's gone on on the earth and then chapter 11 is some kind of like uh Deep, diving deep down into a specific story. Right, Does right. that make any sense to you?
0: It makes sense. That that's the wrong passage. The passage that is, is the earlier passage. I think it's earlier, where it says Nimrod um, built Babel and Ashur and right. Rehoboth era and all these other cities on the plain of Shinar. Because that's what the context is. So it's saying one of those cities, let's expand that story now and look at that city. But it's not about in the time of Peleg that's just that's that's a fabrication i think it doesn't make sense literally of the context so I, I place babel in the context of the of nimrod who is this legendary king not known in history but a legendary king of both um babylon and assyria by the way um if, interesting there was a, a a hunting society that was formed by lutheran pastors called the nimrod society <laughs> because nimrod is a great hunter before the lord it doesn't exist anymore, but it, it was there in the middle of the 20th century, just for fun, they called it the Nimrod Society. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's funny. So so are you saying that Genesis 1025, that is not true? Or are you saying it's about it's not, not completely? It's not referring different? to the
0: same thing. I don't think it's referring to the same thing at all.
1: Interesting. Yeah. So do it's, you know do it's, you not, any, it's, any, it's
0: not the same word for divided anyway? It's a different word. Peleg is related to that word. That's a word play there. Yeah. Mm,
1: interesting. Fascinating. So who would the land, who would the divided, who would the earth be divided then? Like how would it, it be divided? You
0: have to read literally in that context to see what they're talking about. And there's a whole uh, lot in the table of the nations, Genesis 10, that's complicated and difficult. And I don't pronounce on complicated texts. i have dive deep into them. I haven't dived deep into that. So I, I wouldn't want to suggest what it might mean yet. I don't know. It's, I don't think it's actually significant for the entire story. That's why I haven't spent much time on it. Whereas yeah, where the babel is much more important and that's located in a different place in Genesis 10 than the peleg stuff.
1: So, so you have this let us language in Genesis 11 and you've talked about that same language in other in your Liberty Image book and you um, know of course we see that in Genesis 126, we see the us language from God in 322. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that, but as like, what is the us? Who is the yeah, us? Yeah. But as well as um, we have other texts from outside the Bible that seem to be that are in the same context of Genesis one twenty six, where we're creating, and then we have we. And some traders, translators use the same words, and some don't. So um, first, I wanted to read it, and then maybe you can sure. give some input as far as um, what do you think this is referring to so this one text says let us slay to lamb gods with their blood let us create mankind but then also you you in your book you mentioned at least one where um you don't use the same language you use it says, or the what you're quoting from uses the language of we are going to slay to divine alo and from their blood give birth to human beings and mm-hmm. Then the other text says, Let us create a clay figure on which to impose the labor from weariness. Let us give them rest forever. And as I said, they're both in the context of a divine council, and then they're also, you know, creation. So it seems like there's different language. So maybe you can talk about like the whole let us language. Is that just like different translations going on? And as far as like, how, does this play any effect on how we yeah, read the Bible and yeah. referring to the us language?
0: That's a great question. So clearly the text you're speaking of, these mythologies of creation of humans, it's a divine council. It's a group of deities, and a couple of them, or maybe more than a couple, are going to um, actually do the creating, but the whole council decides that the creation of humans is required for some reason. Now, Hebrew is a Semitic language, and... This, these texts are written in, I think, Akkadian, the, ba- the language of Babylon and Assyria. Though one of them might have been Sumerian, I'm not sure, and that's not a Semitic language; that's different. But in Akkadian, if it's a similar to Hebrew, if you if you state, "We are going to do something," that's called the indicative mood in in English, I, It's a statement of fact. If I use um, if I use this statement, "Let's let's go get a burger." That doesn't say we are going to get a burger. It's it's encouraging us to do something. And there is a particular formulation in Hebrew called the cohortative, which means it's about intention or desire and not a statement of fact. It could be that the the Akkadian uses the same thing. I'm not an expert in Akkadian. So it's saying, let's do this. But whether it says let's do this or just we are going to do this, either one. The point is there's a group of deities responsible for creation. I mean, the Bible is monotheistic. The whole Bible is not itself monotheistic, it it tends toward that. Um, There are parts of the Old Testament that suggest there are other gods, don't ever worship them, only worship the Lord. That's called henotheism, right? But Israel came to monotheism later, and I think that Genesis 1 is a monotheistic text. Now it says, God says, let us make humans in our image. And then when humans sin, God said, now the human has become like one of us, you know, let's kick them out of of the garden. And then you have Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah sees the Lord seated on a throne in heaven and the train of his robe fills the Jerusalem temple and he hears a voice coming from the throne saying, who shall I send and who will go for us? Now there are at that point seraphim, angelic beings around God. And you have the variation between the singular and the plural because God is has like a divine council but it's not deities of the same level as god they're angelic beings and god speaks often on their behalf there's even a text in kings where the same thing happens god said who you know who are we going to send let's send an evil spirit to go deceive one of the kings so he'll mess up because he's a disobedient king so this kind of language of let us anytime it's used in the bible it's referring to god seated in heaven in the divine throne room with his angelic attendants around him who are emissaries that he will send to do things. So when he says, let us make humans in our image, it's saying God is saying, let's together do this. What's interesting, it then says God created them in his image. So the, the, the angels are included in the let us, but they don't actually do anything. But I think it's it, a Jewish theology says this, that humans and angels have a similarity in that they are both like God in that they are given rule in the world. They're God's emissaries to carry out his will. The angels in the the realm of heaven, though they sometimes come to earth, and the humans on earth. So in that sense, let us make humans in our image. Yes, we're we're like the angels. We're image of God. But we're unique in that we're earth-bound images of God, meant to manifest God's presence on earth. And just as God said, let us, includes the angels, but God creates us. When God says to, um, earlier in Genesis, Um, let the waters swarm with a bunch of living beings and with fish. It said, and God created those living beings and those fish. It doesn't say the waters actually brought them forth. And when God said "Let the land produce vegetation, that's the only place where it says, and the land produced vegetation. So God empowered the land to grow vegetation. God called upon the living creatures uh, in the sea and on the land to um, come out from the earth and from the, the waters. But it says God created them. So it's like god is giving the opportunity to other creatures to participate okay you can't i'll do it then that's almost the rhetoric of the text like god's not saying i'm just going to do it by myself you want to come join me in this task oh you can't do it okay i'll do it for you then that's the way i read genesis 1.
1: that's fascinating so um so obviously there's going to be the issue of the angels aren't actually creating and the, and if it's, if the angels aren't creating or, or doing much in this, then like, what is the purpose of even mentioning it?
0: That's a good question. Um, what, what about, so the the most interesting one is Isaiah six, right? Who shall I send? and Who will go for us? Are humans going, is is Isaiah going to be a prophet on behalf of just God or behalf of the whole heavenly court of all the angels? because God does not act as a solitary figure. I think this is what you call an adumbration, that is a hint of the Trinity. It's not about the Trinity. Let us doesn't mean God is dressing the the, the Son and the Spirit. That'd be anachronistic to read that into it. But even in the Old Testament, God does not act without others. God is in community of the angelic host, even in, in heaven. Why is that important? I think it just suggests that God is not solitary so it leads to the later Christian notion that God's, God, God is there with it. the Son seated at the right hand and the Spirit, whoever you conceive the Spirit, um, as divine presence there. But there, there, God is not a solitary individual, let's put it that way.
1: Gosh, gotcha, that makes sense. So can you talk more about uh, why you think that specifically Genesis 1.26, but you know also about other passages, that why they're not specifically referring to the Trinity?
0: Because that would be anachronistic. The doctrine of the Trinity doesn't arise until much later. Um, The way we articulate the Trinity, and I'm a Trinitarian, I believe that, the way we articulate the Trinity in the Apostles' Creed is a narrative. I believe in God, the maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And then there's stuff added onto that. But it's a narrative orientation to the Trinity. When you come to the um, Nicene Creed, it becomes a little more metaphysical. God from God, light from light, true God from very God, all that kind of language. You don't find that in the Bible, right? But what you have is a systematization of a narrative. And the best description of the Trinity that I've ever found about how the Bible speaks of the Trinity is a book by F.F. Bruce on the early church called The Spreading Flame. He has about two or three pages on how the church understood the Trinity back then in the New Testament. He says, the same God that the disciples knew as the father as they're in their Jewish worship you know uh, Lord is our God the Lord alone they saw that God in the person of this Galilean peasant manifest in his life and when he left them he came back to them as the spirit and was still present with them and this narrative understanding of the Trinity became the formal doctrine of the Trinity later on but the narrative understanding predates the doctrine And even before the narrative understanding, you have this let us kind of language. So you can't go read later doctrinal formulations back into the text. I don't do this thing called reading backwards. I do reading forwards. How do we get from Genesis 1 to these later texts, to these doctrines historically? That way I can distinguish clearly what the text says from how we came to understand its implications for us today, they're not the same thing. So you couldn't read Trinity into the text unless you already know the Trinity, but it's not there, but it leads to the Trinity. I put it that way. That's the most charitable way I'd put it. So um, in biblical interpretation, there is this tradition that says, we only understood these Old Testament texts when Jesus came. No, 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 it's the other way around. We understood them, then when Jesus came we said, Hey, they're fulfilled in Jesus. So we're reading forwards. So Jesus Himself takes on much more richness and depth when we read Him in the context of the whole Old Testament. It's not that the Old Testament changes its meaning now that we have Jesus; it means exactly what it meant. But it's the context for our reading of Jesus, and that forward movement of the history of redemption makes a whole lot of sense to me. And it's more honest about the actual text and what they say.
1: So, So obviously, there's going to be Some people that are going to say, you know, there's some passages in the Old Testament where you have like the angel of the Lord and those would say that the Christophanies or instances of Jesus, or or even in Genesis uh, one two, it talks about the the spirit over the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about why? I mean, does that seem to contradict with your view of the Trinity not being in Genesis one, or is it just a, a different formulation of that, or what?
0: I think then you have anticipations of the idea of Trinity, but you have that um, God is manifest. So the word angel, right, just is the word messenger in Hebrew. It doesn't have to be a non-human being. A human being can be a messenger, an angel. Um, so how we translate that in some texts is sort of ambiguous. But God has messengers who go They they do his will and they announce things. There are certain places, you know, in the Bible where a woman doesn't have a child and then there's an announcement you will have a child even though you were barren before and the child be important. Sometimes that's announced by a prophet, sometimes by an angel. They're both messengers of God. They bring his word. And so sometimes you have the angel of the Lord. And is that some unique angel, some unique messenger or manifestation of God, like the the head archangel? There's speculation, but we, we don't know. It doesn't tell us that, right? So, God comes in some angelic form to, to manifest himself among his people. Um, you know, traditionally people say, well, that's the, the Logos, Jesus in pre-incarnate form. I don't, I don't buy that because I don't think that the meaning of a text can be determined by a later doctrine. It means what it meant right then in its original context. And that's an, a meaning that could never been there. In the original context. So I can say that the manifestation of God's presence in his spirit, ruach, at the beginning of creation, in the angel of the Lord, in when he built the tabernacle was built by Moses and the spirit and presence of God and his glory filled the tabernacle, that angel, that spirit, that glory was present in Jesus. That's what the New Testament says. We saw his glory and it's like the, the glory that was in a tabernacle that manifested in him. So I want to read forwards and not read later stuff back into it. So I think there's, there, they're all connected ideas. How is God manifest and present in the world? But there are lots of different ways the Bible conceives it, because different authors use different ideas. Some authors use angel of the Lord language. Some don't use that. Some use the glory of the Lord, kavod, which is like a tangible presence and brightness, and people cower. And in, in in book of Genesis, God appears as a man, an ish, Three men came. It turned out two were angels, one was God Himself, but they all just looked like human beings. So God can be manifest in lots of different ways, and you know there is a long tradition as those three angels really Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah, uh, I don't buy that, <laughs> but there's an Eastern Orthodox I- icon that's painted of those three angels visiting Abraham as the Father, Son, and Spirit. You could say they're anticipations of that, but they don't refer to that, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. So it seems like what you're doing is you're taking how the original writer of Genesis or any of these other texts would have seen it. And you're saying it couldn't have been something in the future because they didn't that hadn't been formulated yet. So maybe it might have referred to him, but but we have to read the text and how the ancient Israelite would have read it. Is that a good way to put it?
0: Yes. And we have to read a trajectory of I think move on throughout the Bible, they get interpreted over and over and new interpretations arise until we get to New Testament times. You know, by the time we get to New Testament times, the notion that um, one of the really important points that most Christians don't know about the, the the Bible, they don't read the Bible carefully like Jews do, well, I know a lot of Jews, they say, no, we don't read the Bible carefully either. We read the midrash, the the later commentaries, just like we have a Christian midrash, our popular interpretations. So one of the really important things in in the Old Testament is that when the exile comes, the glory of the Lord left the temple. And it went to Babylon to be with, with Israel and arrives in Babylon in the first chapters of Ezekiel. He sees the glory arrive. But there is a prophecies in Ezekiel, in Isaiah, in Zechariah, in lots of places. The Lord says, I will return to Zion and to my temple because God's been absent. The human sin has desecrated the temple and God's presence is gone. There is a Jewish midrash, which is a later commentary from later times that says that one of the things missing from the Jerusalem temple when it was rebuilt after the exile was the Shekhinah, that is the glory or presence of God. It never returned. The Gospel of Mark begins by quoting two texts from the Old Testament about the coming of God's presence back to Israel and says they've arrived in Jesus. And so this idea that God has somehow left the temple, but he's going to return, he didn't return to the Jerusalem temple. He returned to the man Jesus, who is the temple, the mediator between God and human beings. And that's why Jesus replaces the temple. And so I I look at that, that trajectory and it, it makes a whole lot of sense of the bible but if you just want to go read trinity into everything you'll miss these kind of nuances
1: that's really fascinating that's awesome okay so to continue so uh popular scholars like michael heiser have uh, have kind of formulated the and popularized the view that Deuteronomy 32 specifically 8 and 9 refers to uh Genesis 11, in, in regard to the Tower of Babel, basically saying that, you know, this is the place where God allotted the territories to the sons of God and the like, you know, because they're they're splitting up the, the all of the, the nations. And so that, that's where I guess where you have, uh, I guess, each son of God is allotted a specific land or a nation. And then you have Israel, obviously. But. Um, And, you know, and also it's kind of explained a little bit better by the let us language because you have this, you know, divine entities language. And you also see uh, it also shows why the story of Abraham is right after as Abraham was the person he chose to be the, you know, for God chose to be the father of the descendants of Israel. So do you have any thoughts on that view specifically?
0: I don't think the Deuteronomy passage that you're referring to has anything to do with Babel. I think that Heiser is connecting things that are really unconnected. And Heiser often connects things that I think shouldn't be connected. Um, Heiser also reads the Bible through the lens of 1st and 2nd Enoch, which I don't do. That's an intertestamental book and reads too much into the Bible. He's a brilliant scholar and he has a lot of insight. But on certain things, I prefer to stay closer to the text and not allow these kind of assumptions to guide me. I want to see how they arise on the text itself. So yeah, Deuteronomy, like many texts in the Bible, assumes that um, it's not just Yahweh in charge of everything, but that there are angelic beings, sons of God, or even other deities can be called sons of God in in the Bible too, that are in charge of other nations. Um, That is in Deuteronomy. Um, Samuel is very interesting. Um, When David is fleeing from Saul, he comes to the the Philistines and he says that um, God has chased him, out of his land and forced him to serve other gods <laughs> but david says it's kind of weird stuff there is a stuff with other gods um other deities in the bible in various places the, the clear thing is israel is never to worship them do not bow down to them worship the lord alone there may be other powers in the world they're not for you to harness or to think that you should cut out to them But I don't connect that to to the Bible story. I think it's a different kind of story entirely.
1: Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So I guess it comes to, I mean, I guess he would interpret that Deuteronomy 32 is, I guess, an interpretation of Genesis 11, maybe?
0: I don't think it's related to Genesis 11 at all, personally. Um, I I I mean, if I was to make a guess, I'd hazard a guess that Genesis 11 is later than Deuteronomy. So that, interesting, but but that's just a guess. I don't know for sure.
1: Well, he also thinks that Genesis one to eleven is is written, you know, at the time of the exile, um, Babylonian exile. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: uh,
1: so that's interesting. And, you, and, and most you know, people
0: think Deuteronomy comes from maybe the seventh century, so that's a century before the exile. So that wouldn't make sense that Deuteronomy is referring to the Babel story.
1: Mm, that's true. That's true. So, so well, in that case who would when you know when it says when the most high gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind do you have any idea what that would be referring to in regards to the division of mankind
0: so i the question i would ask is what would the author have intended by that not how do i harmonize that with other parts of the bible which aren't talking about that because that becomes a false harmonization you actually so you know I, i tell my students the bible is coherent But it has diverse points of view and different ways of putting things. And you can't always harmonize everything at the surface level. I think conceptually, it's fundamentally harmonized. And this applies to, say, um, eschatological language of the the end, right? If you look at the language of Paul in Thessalonians or Corinthians or Book of Revelation or Matthew, the, the Olivet Discourse, the language is really different. And if you try to harmonize them, you get a confused picture. But if you ask of each text, What's the point the text is making? I think all the points are harmonious, are coherent. But the details are very different, because you have different conceptualities of different people. I often point out that, um, take the three major prophets, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a priest and uses a lot of priestly language about contamination and abomination. Jeremiah seems to have read the book of Deuteronomy, and is always talking about covenant and breaking covenant and a new covenant. You find um, Isaiah, the only prophet who had access to the king and the divine court. He may have been a royal blood. He's always talking about, you know, a a shoot from Jesse is going to come. There's going to be a new king who's going to be, the government will rest upon his shoulders, and he will restore Israel. So they have different ways of speaking because they're coming from different contexts. They're coherent, but they're not saying exactly the same thing. So I I just want to emphasize I believe in the coherence of scripture but i also want to take the specificity of this deuteronomy text and not try and read it into other texts
1: gotcha gotcha okay so something that kind of came to my head was talk about um so you have the the ziggurats um so obviously well you, i mean you have in one hand you have like you have a text genesis 11 that seems to be in the context of you know where the ancient israel is and um oh i guess i guess the inference my question is how do you come to the conclusion that it's referring to a ziggurat compared to like a tower because it, you know obviously yeah. it doesn't specifically say oh this right. is a ziggurat
0: right so the hebrew word is migdal from gadal to be big or great and a migdal is a tower and when i wrote liberating image the section on babel i actually said i don't think it's a ziggurat i think it's a fortification a military fortification like a tower you'd have in a city wall where the archers would be able to shoot from, because there's mention of these kind of towers as military fortifications throughout the Bible in all kinds of places. Um, I came to be convinced with ziggurat because I finally understood what a ziggurat was. I was misinterpreting a ziggurat to mean a way to ascend to heaven, and I thought that's not what the text is ever about. But if you look at a ziggurat as a way for the gods to ascend to earth, so the top of a ziggurat has a small, like like a shrine for the deity. And there is a bed and a table with food and incense and stuff like that. So the gods, when they come from heaven, they get a resting place. They can get a little nap. Then they come down to Ziggurat and there's a temple at the base of the Ziggurat. And then they, they come into their divine image in the temple. That's the function of a Ziggurat. And that is so common, unique to Mesopotamia, that these towers were there, that I think that's what's going on. I think it makes a lot of sense to think of that. And it's it's not just about their military conquest, it's about the religious legitimacy that they wanted to ascribe to their military conquests. Whereas the text of Genesis is saying, no, it was just human hubris, it was just human attempts to get power and control. And don't go blaming, you know, don't say they didn't say the devil made me do it, the gods made me do it. No, the gods didn't make you do it. You did it yourself, and it's all going to come crumbling down. So, so, I mean, you could always argue against ziggurats, but I think that probably 90% of all biblical scholars think it's a ziggurat, but not all understand the function of a ziggurat correctly.
1: Gotcha. And of course you've been in in that other side,
0: so that's interesting to hear that. Yeah, yeah. I changed my mind once I fully understood what it was about, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so in regards to, um, so obviously you have, and a lot of these ancient Near Eastern stories, you have, you know, they all almost all of them have flood stories, and and specifically Genesis, you have you have Genesis six through eight, I believe, where uh... six through nine, where it's you know it's about the flood, and then right after that you have you know building a tower and building it high, and not of that. But I've I've been told that the materials that are used here are are I guess waterproof. So some people have concluded that maybe this maybe this tower of babel or even other ziggurats of the time period were used to like
0: and, escape and the preparation.
1: yeah exactly do you have any thoughts on that idea
0: no <laughs> i don't think that's worth having thoughts on to be honest really it's just pure speculation come on uh, yeah.
1: so it comes down to i guess what we need evidence for
0: yeah so so it's a, I get a lot of questions people ask me either online or you know um, on chats about things biblical interpretation and sometimes I want to respond to but to respond I say let me unpack the assumptions you just built into that question because the assumptions don't even make sense to me. So the ancient Aries, they had multiple floods. There are lots of floods mentioned in the ancient Aries. So there was. And the the flood stories uh, of ancient Sumer and Babylon, right, go back way, way, way before the Bible, a long time before. They're old things. They're, They're not about one flood. They're the memory of many floods. The point is not whether it's a historical reference to a particular flood. The point is, what's the theology being communicated? And let's take Atrahasis, Atrahasis' epic, which is creation to flood in ancient Mesopotamia. The Atrahasis' epic is about the fact that the gods, once they created human beings, and humans started to multiply they made so much noise that gods couldn't sleep in heaven their sleep was disturbed so the god said let's wipe out the human race or at least thin them out so they send a plague and then one of the gods enki who's a god who likes humans come down and says hey if you want to stop the plague go to the temple of the god who started it over there and give him lots of sacrifices and he would say okay you satisfied me i'll stop the plague and then the gods said, all right let's try something else i send a drought and they send the drought. He said, if you want to stop the drought, because everybody's dying, right? Go to the temple of the God who is in charge of the drought and offer him sacrifices, and he will stop the drought. So they do that. Then the God said, all right, Enki, we're going to send a flood now. You're not allowed to tell anybody about it. He said, okay, I promise I won't. You know, cross my heart, I hope to die. And he goes down and stands beside the boat shed of a man named Atrahasis. It means very wise. And he says, I'm talking to the boat shed. I'm not talking to any person, so I'm not disobeying the gods. I'm talking to the boat shed. If you're smart, you will stock a boat with a lot of food and get it, get in there because a flood is coming. And Atrahasis gets in there. Now, when the flood story is over in the Atrahasis epic, the, well, first of all, the gods, um, they were starving because they had no sacrifices, right? And Atrahasis, after the flood subsides, he offers a sacrifice of some of the animals he kept on his boat. And the sweet, savory smell went up to the gods. And they said, oh, thank you. Thank you, Enki. You saved us. You kept one person who can now feed us, because the gods live on sacrifices. But now human race is going to proliferate again, and they're going to have the same problem. They won't be able to sleep. So you know what they say? Let's institute spontaneous abortion, diseases, and and people who are born deformed and don't live long. That cuts down the population so we can sleep. That's the Atrahasa story. The Genesis story says, all right, they talk about a flood. We're not going to dispute whether there's a flood or not. We're going to explain why the flood came. The flood came because human violence filled the earth and corrupted the entire world. And God wanted to wash the earth earth clean of violence and start over the righteous man. And so after the flood, instead of cutting down the human race, what God does, he says, no one should kill anyone anymore. And he puts a law prohibiting murder. And that's Genesis 9, verse 6, because all people are made in the image of God. The point of the flood story is not whether there was a flood. The point is the theological rationale for the flood. And Israel is critiquing. Yeah, so in the Babylonian flood story, the point of the flood is to thin out the population of earth because they're too noisy and the gods can't sleep. So after the flood, the gods decided to make the population not be so proliferous. So they, they instituted spontaneous abortion and disease and deformed people who wouldn't live long. In the Bible, the point of the flood is to um, get rid of the violence that has corrupted the earth. So after the flood, what God institutes is a law against murder because all people are made in God's image. So the theological ethical reason for the flood in the Bible is that God wants to limit the violence that's in the world. In contrast to the Mesopotamian idea, the gods couldn't rest because there was so much noise. So it's not whether there was a flood or not. There were many floods, but the point of the story is to make a theological claim, an ethical claim too.
1: Can you give us just uh, a place that we can access content and maybe read some books or anything else you'd like to advertise?
0: Sure, Um, I have a website just called jrichardmiddleton.com. I do some blogging there, but I don't do much blogging right now because I'm very busy with writing. But you can access a lot of my articles in a PDF form and a list of my books with links to them if you want to go check that out. And you can always search the blog posts. I've written on lots of different topics over the years.
1: Awesome. All right, well, this has been so much fun. I really appreciate you being on here. I'm sure a lot of people got a lot out of this. Um, I hope you have a great rest of your day,
0: Richard. So, so nice to be here. Thank you. Awesome. It. Thank
1: you so much.